ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. Welcome back to another episode of the Lux Unplugged podcast. This week I'm talking to François Pauli, Group CEO at Edmond de Rothschild, or EDR. François Pauli is a well-known personality in the Luxembourg ecosystem, with family roots going back to the creation of the very first insurance company in Luxembourg and this more than 100 years ago. A lot of Luxembourgers will certainly remember François as the CEO and later chairman of another major Luxembourg bank, namely BIL. Having been recently appointed as CEO of EDR, François walks me through the key components of this branch of the Rothschild family and how it became the significant financial services group based in Geneva, and this with a global presence. Of course, I couldn't resist asking him more about what his group does in the sustainability space as the finance world is increasingly being scrutinized when it comes to solving the climate change problem. Here, listeners will learn something which stands out compared to other peers. In the second half of the conversation, we dive into the latest trends impacting the Luxembourg economy. François is indeed a non-executive board member in many companies across a variety of sectors, so it couldn't be a better position to be in to provide a broad overview of the current situation. One of his major concerns revolves around preserving the competitiveness of the Luxembourg ecosystem, and many people will relate to what he's about to discuss in this very insightful exchange. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with François Pauli, Group CEO at Edmond de Rothschild. François Pauli, welcome to the show. Good morning. We've got a very established tradition here on this uh, on the Luxembourg podcast, so obviously for the Luxembourg community, you are no stranger. But for the international community or the international audience that we've got, how would you introduce yourself? So uh, my name is François Pauli. I, I am 57 years old. I was born in, in Luxembourg and uh, growing up in Luxembourg uh, was always uh, for me, I would say, my roots, roots coming back to many generations where my family have been living in, in, in Luxembourg. I left Luxembourg for studies. I left Luxembourg for work. But I still believe that I am a true Luxembourger. My understanding is that you come from a, an established family of entrepreneurs and financiers. And that goes back many generations. Just for the benefit of the, the wider audience, what is the background behind this, this family? And um, I would imagine that the way, the way you've learned things from your family has influenced the way you do things today in your day of life or in your daily life. Uh, yes, yes, I think it, it's interesting to, to look back a little bit. Uh, after the First World War, Luxembourg was a very poor country and Luxembourg uh, was before the war in the customs union with, with the German Reich, but this was not anymore possible. So Luxembourg joined the uh, economic union with Belgium and some farmers and some politicians uh, have been very much disappointed in, in Luxembourg and that there was no local player in insurance and no real local player in banking. So they set up in 1920 a company called La Luxembourgeoise, which was starting with insurance and uh, with banking. And one of the founders was, was my uh, grandfather. So indirectly, uh, I am third generation in, in, in banking and in insurance. Today, La Luxembourgeoise is, is still active in uh, insurance in Luxembourg. It's one of the leaders in, in life and non-life insurance, as well as in health insurance in Luxembourg. 
but uh, they went out of banking in in the 70s and they also went out of a very interesting other activity which was brewing so the famous Dickirsch brand and Mosul beer brand have been belonging to to this family company for over 60 years now i never uh, worked actively in in the company as an employee but i was over the last 30 years uh, a board member and for the last 10 years uh, a non-executive chairman of the group and has there been a mantra in the family, sort of a line of conduct that you've learned from, from this, this line of entrepreneurs? The fact that this company was founded uh, after the First World War and during the Second World War, uh, every asset was seized by the German uh, occupants. We restarted in, in, in '45 from scratch. Uh, I think a family has to know or family business has to know that uh, the weather is not always as nice as one could expect and one should be prepared for the worst. And I think that's something I, I learned uh, over my, my career. I started myself in 87 in banking just 19 days before the big crash in 87. I started working in Italy in 2001 uh, just a few days after 9-11. So I believe that one has to be prepared for difficult challenges. Otherwise, one will not be able to manage critical situations. And that's, I would say, easier in a family-owned business because there your main aim is to prepare your company for handing it over to a new generation. So I am third generation, but there are already fourth and fifth generation around. So that's, uh, I would say, the challenge which you have in a family-owned uh, company. Talking back to your background on finance, as this has been the, the great bulk of your career, last year you were appointed as the group CEO of Edmond Rothschild. So I'll, I'll refer back to this firm as EDR. Rothschild, as we all know, is, um, is a well-known brand. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been around also for many generations. Um, and it's, it's known for its services in, in, or for its presence in financial service industry. But you, you are active in a particular branch of it because, because there's not only one, one particular um, area, one, one branch of the Rothschild family uh, active in their field. So how would you describe the group that you're in now? And, and maybe like a bit of background for, for those that are not that familiar with Rothschild. What's the, what's the whole ecosystem behind this? Okay, so, so when looking back at as Rothschild family history. So they left in the 18th century from Frankfurt to Paris, to London, to uh, Naples in Italy and to Vienna. So when looking at, uh, at it, it's uh, five arrows. So the, the five sons of Amschel Rothschild who started uh, building a network of, of banks uh, back in the 18th century. The uh, Austrian and the Italian branches disappeared uh, due to lack of sons or, or daughters in, in, in these respective families. The ones who are still active are the so-called French and the so-called British Rothschild families. And the French one is split into a Paris-based one and a Geneva-based one. Edmond Rothschild left from France in the late 50s to Geneva to set up a private bank in, in, in Geneva, which is today basically active in wealth management, in asset management, and smaller uh, player also in corporate finance. The remaining French 
uh, Rothschild activities is internationally very much known for M&A and corporate finance. And that's the historic uh, French uh, branch of it. So we are the former Paris-based, now Geneva-based branch. We are uh, managing roughly 200 billion Swiss uh, assets under management, both in wealth management and in asset management. On an international scale, mainly Europe, but we have also presence in, in Israel. We have different presences in, 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 in uh, the Middle East. Uh, and uh, today we have roughly 2,600 staff. In London, we have a small presence. We are not as big as we want to be. But funny enough, where we are sitting in, 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 in London is a famous Carlton House uh, where uh, General de Gaulle uh, was uh, active during his presence in London. So his boardroom uh, or his war boardroom in a way in London is the boardroom of our bank in London today. When coming maybe to, to, to the question you had earlier on on ecosystem, Edmund Rothschild, in addition to uh, the banking activity, has also an activity in, in uh, what we called Edmund Rothschild heritage, which is basically in hospitality. So we have a number of hotels, a very famous one in Majev in the Swiss Alps, and uh, we have a number of vineyards on all continents, so in, in Europe, but also in, in Argentina, in uh, South Africa, in New Zealand. Uh, and I think that's also a family tradition to be very much linked uh, to uh, agriculture, to, to food processing. Uh, Lafitte Rothschild, a very famous wine, was already b uh, bought by, by the family in uh, 1868, I, I, I guess, so it's a long, long tradition to, to be active in, in, in the wine industry in our, in, in our family. And in addition, uh, I think that's uh, also reflecting a little bit that uh, there is a long-term goal because investing in vineyards, it's not a quick return. You have challenging times when weather conditions are not really the ones you are expecting and you need to always improve uh, your quality and, and to have a stable quality if you want to brand it as a uh, high premium uh, wine. This is more of a side question, but it, is it technically when you invest in wine, is it, is it really considered as an investment? Is it more an asset as part of your branding? Uh, I think so. I think that's, that's uh, over generation, it, it was certainly a, a very good yielding asset for the family. Uh, but when you are starting, uh, for example, uh, Benjamin de Rothschild together with his wife, uh, Baroness Ariane, started uh, a joint venture in the Eurora area in Spain. That's a very long-term investment because you have to build, you have to buy plots, you have to find the right team, uh, you have to find the right blending uh, of uh, different grapes to make a great wine, and this is not a quick return. This is not uh, yielding uh, like in the tech world or in, in, in the financial markets. But if you can build a, a strong brand over generations, it's certainly an asset which, which makes sense in a, in a large portfolio like the one uh, the family is managing. If we move back to your actual role within the EDR group, so as I mentioned in the beginning, you joined a group, I mean, joining is, is maybe not the right uh, term, but you 
became CEO of the group last year in in June. That was still when the pandemic was still at at the height of its uh, of its activity, so to speak. How did it feel for you to take over such a big group whilst you know having to observe social distancing and and predominantly having to to do work from from your home office? Yeah, maybe maybe one additional uh, information. So I joined the board of EDR already in 2016. So I was a board member uh, for the last five years before becoming a CEO of the group, and I was the chairman of the audit committee uh, for the last three years. So in a way, I, I, I had a good insight of, of the bank. And what happened early last year, just one year ago, the owner, Baron Benjamin de Rothschild, passed away on January 15th. And the uh, CEO uh, was uh, expecting his retirement for summer. So at the board level, the big question was whether we go for a big change or whether we want to have some continuity in, in the management of, of the bank. And the owner decided to pick someone who was already in the group and not just going uh, to, to hunt on the, on the market for, for a new CEO, which was for me... I would say at a starting point, certainly an advantage that I knew already, uh, I would say senior management and I knew a number of, of our operations. But I knew these operations through the view of a non-executive board member, which is certainly not the same then as a CEO. Coming back to your question, how you are managing it when you are not able to meet physically, that is very challenging. I, I must admit, uh, although I'm not so old, I'm old-fashioned in a way, I still want to, to, to see my staff, to meet with my people. And so far, the only place I haven't been uh, in our group uh, uh, was London uh, and Israel uh, due to uh, quite a lot of travel restriction all the time. And when there was an opening... Uh, a week later, there was already, again, a number of problems to travel. But we, we have also uh, discovered, I would say, in our industry that uh, video conferencing, that digital transactions can happen very quick and that all the securities issues and all the, I would say, the people who haven't been very happy to go into such a direction have finally accepted that we are in a digital world, that we can meet without meeting physically, that we can have a transaction going through in, in a digital way. So we, we, we did an upgrade, I would say, in a very short period of time, because when, when already in March uh, there was the first lockdown, the bank went into two weeks globally into a lockdown and, and was able to run and even to grow. So uh, we looked not yet at our final number for 2022, but there was growth last year, although the environment was, was, was very tricky. So I think that was, from a technical perspective, it was not too difficult to start, but it is still not easy. And we are uh, speaking today out of, out of Switzerland. In Switzerland, uh, we are obliged again to go into homeworking wherever it's possible. So in, in Geneva, it's, it's, it's a kind of regulation that if you can do a home office, you have to do it uh, through home office and you are not able to join uh, your office. 
I'm quite optimistic that uh, this was a very uh, good learning experience, but we need a mix. We cannot stay in home working for uh, a full other year, uh, but we certainly will offer more flexibility in some of our jobs uh, to staff where, where we see that there is added value uh, both from an employee's perspective and also from the bank's perspective. Now, moving back to uh, a topic that is more uh, part of, the, as you said earlier, part of the core operations of uh, EDR, namely um, profit banking, wealth management and, and asset management. We've had the previous guests on our show discussing, I mean, it was more in Luxembourg now, here we're talking about Swiss-based operations, but, but also globally. It is, it is a tough industry. It is highly uh, competitive, especially uh, motivated by regulation, low returns, and you know, net nowadays even higher valuations where we don't know where they're going to end. And still attracting new clients is a, is a challenge. But at the same time, and this is a very common theme that we've been covering off at uh, here on the Luxembourg podcast, is sustainability, not only in terms of offering, but also in a way that you, you as a company, the way you act, is, is very important. One of the recent initiatives that uh, I guess Rothschild or EDR undertook, and you mentioned that uh, a few minutes back, that uh, the group has been active in, um, in agriculture worldwide. And also you recently launched or co-launched with a VC firm, so a venture capital firm in an agri-tech or food tech a fund that is meant to promote startups that are making it well making the food production so to speak more more sustainable in a nutshell but what so can you give us a few words on on this initiative as it is it, it seems to be more in line with the, the genes of uh, of the group yeah i think that the the first statement on this subject is, is is a very easy one and a very tough one today we have roughly 800 million maybe a billion people not eating uh, enough a day to survive and enough not to die in a way. So that's really still in the 21st century a reality. We still have a population growth which um, makes this uh, subject uh, even more urgent in a number of countries. And we have on the other side uh, 30 to 40% of food which is prepared but which is thrown away because uh, in some countries uh, people have the luxury uh, not uh, to eat what is in the fridge or what is coming into, into a restaurant or on the table in a private household. So that's a, a very tough equation. We also know that land will diminish in a way as population is growing or at least as demand for, for, for land is growing either for residential but also for, for industrial purposes. So we strongly believe that this sector, uh, the agriculture sector, uh, has to go to a big revolution uh, which um, is needed that in a few years and hopefully not uh, only in a century, this equation will be in equilibrium so we can produce food for everyone and we are not uh, having people on one side starving and on the other uh, side of the world uh, a surplus. 
Um, there are a number of uh, a number of initiatives uh, in this field, but so far, uh, when looking at the big numbers, there are not billions who are injected into this kind of projects. Big food companies have their own uh, RD development centers on this. There are some, I would say, public state-driven uh, initiatives. But we believe that together with some universities, with uh, Peakbridge, which is our partner, which is a very famous VC who had already launched a number of funds in this industry, we could invest in companies helping to improve the situation. And this kind of impact financing is for us important. So money is used for a purpose and money Money's purpose is not just to generate money. So I think that's that's quite key for us. And uh, hopefully uh, we could also add, and that's we are a private sector player, that there are also decent returns where we believe there will be decent returns on this kind of uh, investments. In the interest of time, I also wanted to uh, touch upon the Luxembourg topic as, a, as mentioned in the introduction, you've been there, you were born in Luxembourg, but also you've been very active there back in the years. You also, you've occupied a, a certain number of uh, board positions within a variety of sectors in, in the Luxembourg economy. So my understanding is that you certainly have a, a broad overview. So you are in a position to, to kind of understand the pulse of what's happening in the, in the broader sense of the economy and, and what the major trends have been. So for the benefit of the audience, how would you describe then major trends that you've observed in, in the last, let's say, five years? And of course, adopting a forward-looking approach, how would you predict the next five ones? Difficult question. Um, so I, I would say when looking even a little bit back, uh, and not just for five years, and looking at the Luxembourg economy, one has to be very clear, the domestic market in Luxembourg, although Luxembourg uh, was growing much quicker than the European average, remains a small market in a way. So when looking at, at players and looking at functions I, I had in, in players who have been only active in the Luxembourg domestic market, there, there, there was... Uh, a very challenging uh, environment in, in some industries because competition was easier in, in, in a lot of fields because uh, we had uh, the possibility to come to Luxembourg as a company through the fact that uh, Luxembourg is a member state of the European Union so you have freedom of, of setting up operations in Luxembourg so for example, in banking, in insurance, in, 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 in other service companies, a lot of uh, players came, came to Luxembourg. And at the beginning, maybe not for discovering the domestic market, but once they have been there, they also looked at the domestic market. So we, we, we have been in a very competitive market in, in Luxembourg. And from a government's perspective, a lot of these players didn't have decision centers in Luxembourg. What does it mean? If, if you are a member of a larger group, you often have regional organizations where Luxembourg is covered by 
a representative in Belgium or in Germany or, or, or in France. So these markets could be not considered as being key markets for some of the players coming to Luxembourg and for others, it was just the opposite. So we had a lot of volatility with players entering the market, exiting the markets. And if you are a player who is only in your domestic markets, you always have to adapt to, to this incoming or, or, or levers in, in your market. So I would say looking at the size of Luxembourg, in every industry in Luxembourg, competition is very high. As we are right, right in the middle of Europe and as uh, a lot of people are attracted by the growth rates in Luxembourg. I take an example uh, recently in, in, in the construction area and in, in the real uh, estate development uh, business in Luxembourg. Ten years ago, real estate developer have been all Luxembourg-based family-owned uh, groups who, who have been in construction and then became a developer. Today, all of the big developers from Belgium in real estate have huge operations in Luxembourg because Luxembourg is growing. Luxembourg is lacking uh, of uh, residential entities. Luxembourg needs, needs to have more homes, more apartments. So the competition um, is definitely increasing in, in Luxembourg. And what uh, we also see, and that's, I would say, a, a trend, and, and it's an interesting trend. Uh, I was chairman of the largest uh, press group uh, with a daily having a very high circulation. This daily uh, newspaper in Luxembourg was historically written in, in German. Then there have been adding some pages in, in French. Today, the increasing of population in, in Luxembourg is not coming from people who are speaking German or are speaking French, but it's mainly, I would say, some Southern European languages where French could be maybe used, but a lot of English is coming into the game. So you have to adapt, you have to have an offer uh, where you are sure that on the growth, which is on paper visible in this country, you are also a successful player. And that makes it, I would say, even for a small market, a challenging environment with winners, but sometimes also with losers. And I think that's, that's something important. One point, and that's, a, 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 I would say, a point uh, which one doesn't like to, to hear when one is based only in Luxembourg, you know that in Luxembourg, salaries are indexed by inflation automatically. And uh, the same for the boss salary than for the worker salary at a minimum wage. This makes your cost level each year when there is inflation higher, although there is maybe no improvement of your margin or no improvement of your turnover. At the end of the day, in a market, uh, as I have been describing it, which is very European, very international, this is hitting some of our industries, some of our activities. We saw it in the fund industry. We saw it in some activities for banking that groups, larger groups, are then trying to onshore in other countries these activities where they don't have this automatic inflation um, adaptation of, of, of salary costs. So that's something uh, I think Luxembourg has 
to, to find a solution and even more where we are maybe back in a in a field where inflation is is popping up I think we have been now five years in an environment where there was no inflation or close to none but now uh, we, we have inflation so this is a big challenge in, in Luxembourg and hopefully we will find a, a kind of solution where maybe the lower and the mid salaries have this kind of inflation linked adaptations but not for every uh, salary otherwise luxembourg will will be less competitive in two to three years for for some of our industries which we have in that country and i'm seeing it as we have 600 people in luxembourg at edr it's a very important financial center but we we have to be careful on the cost side Surely, um, when because the Luxembourg government has been making uh, a lot of efforts to attract bigger groups to the country, obviously to to increase employment, to increase tax intakes, and so forth. But on the other hand, as you just said, the indexing is is a problem. How can you kind of come up with a uh, a long term solution to to preserve that trend without? I mean, obviously, Luxembourg is less productive, more expensive than other European nations. But if if you had to kind of take a take a guess or, or make an, an educated decision, what would be your your best solution? There are a lot of advantages in uh, in Luxembourg, and uh, I don't want to stress uh, on, on these advantages. I would say the threats today are the housing offer, which definitely is uh, it's an issue, uh, and the issue is 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 not so difficult to be solved. I'm 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 not uh, mainstream on this, saying that you cannot solve it. We have the unique chance still in Luxembourg to have a lot of land available. And in some areas, we can develop uh, building two, three floors higher, uh, which is even from an ecological point of view better because you are conserving more, more, more land for natural uh, development. But we are very complicated on bringing uh, land into development projects until the final stage of uh, being plots for, for 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 selling this takes a huge number of years and uh, through this there is always a backlog and this backlog has to be solved there are countries who are facing similar situations. Uh, I saw the German new government uh, wants to build uh, half a million units a year. In the Netherlands, they took a decision if the local authorities are not opposing within three months' time, you can start building. So th- th- there are solutions. We also have to, uh, to, to uh, improve, um, as I was saying, uh, the the offering in international schooling, although there have been a lot of uh, things done, uh, but I still believe there could be some more offers. And what is important, what we are seeing now in Luxembourg, a lot of young people are, are coming to Luxembourg in the age range 25 to 35. There we need dedicated co-living uh, housing projects where, where they can also socialize uh, after work hours. And this is not always allowed. And we, we had discussion in the second largest city in Luxembourg, whether co-living uh, is not a way to earn more money as a landlord. No, I think uh, if co-living is done in a right a manner and a right setup. It's improving a lot quality of life, both for 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 people coming to Luxembourg and also giving more, I would say, energy to to smaller cities in in Luxembourg to have younger people uh, to, to to come to these areas. 
So I think that's an, a, a real issue. Competitive salaries depends on tax. I think tax as such is not an, an, an issue. I think taxation on is, is, is not high, it's not low. But uh, we, 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 we need to make sure that the part people are spending for rents are not going up crazy. Otherwise, uh, people uh, will not uh, come to, to work to Luxembourg. On that very constructive note, uh, François, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to, to our podcast today. And we certainly look forward to having you back in, in the near or, or midterm future. Thank you very much. Merci vielmals, as one would say in Luxembourg. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Luxembourg podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxonplug.com. And see you next time. Mm-hmm.